Welcome to An Hour of Our Time, the podcast where we choose a topic, research it, and tell you about what we've learned. Today we're discussing the assassination of William the Silent, or William the Duke of Orange. We'll discuss some of the background of the assassination, mainly the Netherlands and their relationship with Spain and the Catholic Church in the 1500s. We'll talk about William's assassination by Balthazar Gerard and Gerard's subsequent torture and execution. I'm Dave. I'm Mark. I'm Joe. All right, so you ready to talk some political assassination? Some convoluted family histories? Oh my God, God yes. These fucking rulers of Europe <laughs> at this time, like, you know, the, the trope that, like, all the monarchs of Europe were, you know, in, like, marrying their cousins, and it was all incestuous, like, it is true, and that that stuff comes from this time period, right? Do you know about the Habsburg jaw? Yeah, it was a it was a genetic defect. <laughs> they were so inbred that a bunch of the Habsburg rulers had like a big misshapen lower face. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, a lot of those portraits, you know, from this time period are like intensely ugly. <laughs> Yes, and I've also read that um, they're intensely ugly, but they're also better looking than they actually were. Like the painters were still sort of like gussying it up a little bit. Oh, oh man, sure, sure. It's been a real bunch of uggas then. I was gonna say something to the effect of like the Habsburg jaw is like something that the nice lady gives you under the uh, interstate ramp. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pay extra for that, but what you pay is the genetic defects of your children. <laughs> Yep. But you get a little uh, blessing by the Pope at the end. Right. <laughs> so, so let me explain why <laughs> let me explain why we're talking about this. So uh, a couple months ago, Joe has said before, and other people have told me that I, I tend to be a little obsessed with the macabre. And when I do certain work, uh, and when I do like animation work and stuff like that, I often want to have something on in the background, listening to music or things like that. Um, but I also listened to like a lot of YouTube videos about different things relating to history. And I was watching one about the most gruesome torture and executions mm -hmm. in history. And the video I watched got to number one and it was like, oh, of course it's, it's, um, Gerard Barth, Balthazar Gerard. And I had never heard this name. Yeah. And you're and, like, or the um, story. yeah, obviously it's him. I definitely yeah. know who that is. I better, yeah. I better just keep watching and make sure that they got it right. <laughs> Well, then I watched another video, and it was also like number one. It was like, oh, of course, Balthazar Gerard. And I was like, what is going on? And then I read something, and it was like a list. Same thing. It was like, yeah, number one, obviously. So so I got to looking into the story. And not only is the execution and torture like crazy, the whole story is, is crazy. Mm -hmm. It's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. And the real reason we're talking about it is this is the first political assassination in history by firearm. In 1584, so yeah. This this is also my uh, my backdoor into getting us to do a series of episodes on the wars of religion, which is something that I like Whew. sort of sort of tongue in cheek have suggested at several points because because what we have just all realized over the past couple weeks is 
that it's so goddamn complicated. It really is. It really is. Um, I remember being, I told, I texted, uh, you, you know, you guys this uh, yesterday um, or earlier today that like, I remember, I distinctly remember being very confused by this t- period of history um, when taking European history. Like, you know, I, I, you know, so you remember like some of the things like the peace of Westphalia and, you know, some of these things, like the major results maybe of like third of the 30 years war and, and, and stuff like this, or just generally that the Protestants and the Catholics were mad at each other. But like, yeah, just the, the inbreeding of the, and interrelatedness of the monarchs, the borders are very different than they are today and they're changing. Um, I mean, even just like the concept, which I think we can get into later, but like the concept of the state yeah. as we conceive it right. today was born out of this period mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of in history, but wasn't like fully formed at this point, at, at least in European history. So, you know, like there was monarchs sort of ruled over their sort of territory, but it wasn't like, you know, I am the King of France. Right. And, uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't set up like these, um, they didn't set up these absolute monarchies until, you know, a little bit, uh, just at the tail end of this period, really. So anyway, well, this is all to say that using as fuck. Yeah. We need to give a little bit of background, but I, I definitely want to keep it brief because I want to focus this episode on the assassination of William the silent yes. by, uh, Balthazar Gerard. It sounds like that Brad Pitt movie. Did you see that? Um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good movie. It's it's long, um, but like I want to focus on that. I want to focus on uh, Gerard's ex- torture and execution. So I think I mean I could give a very quick background, but how do we want to start, or where do we want to start? Don't worry, Dave. We'll leave plenty of time for you to go into yes. gruesome detail about mm, the the execution. Getting burned with bacon fat. That's a good way to go. Ooh. As I read through some of this stuff, each each item had to be explained and prefaced by like another paragraph. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if I understand the background of this as much as I would like, but I, I could maybe speak to the Habsburgs. I say I could sum it up in 30 seconds, but I think that might be too brief. Well, let's do this then, Dave. Yeah. Do, do that. Give okay. us like the Cliff's Notes. Then I can go into some more detail and we can kind of discuss. Um, so we give folks a background. And and yes, I will keep it brief. Okay, so here's the cliff notes. By the mid to late 1500s, Spain has conquered a lot of areas of Europe. And that includes what is modern day France and modern day Netherlands. Par- parts of France. Parts of France, yes. Spain is Catholic. And if you remember from previous episodes we've had, there was a Protestant Reformation in the early mm-hmm. 1500s. So there's a lot of Protestants in Europe as well. Uh, it happens that in the Netherlands, there's a lot of Protestants. And they don't love the Catholicism being pushed on them by Spain and their ruler by the 1580s, uh, King Philip II. Right? Philip II. Yeah. There was, uh, there was also um, the Reformation and then after... Immediately sort of preceding this period, there was the Counter-Reformation. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain what the Counter-Reformation is? So the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation is, you know, sort of spearheaded by Martin Luther, conforming the Catholic Church. 
into the Protestant Christian Church as we know it today. The the Catholic uh, Counter-Reformation is a broad period of time uh, stretching from around 1545. So these things overlap, right? The, the, the Reformation period is typically uh, considered to have gone from 1517 to 1648. So that's over 100 years. The Counter-Reformation counter uh, from 1545 to 1700. And the Counter-Reformation was, I mean, just kind of like the name suggests, um, it was a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. So this is the, uh, the Catholic Church's response. Um, so the, that year, 1545, is um, the Council of Trent, where essentially it was the Catholic the 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 Catholic groups, especially the Catholic Church, um, trying to put the the uh, toothpaste back in the tube. Right. So broadly speaking, the Spanish, you know, taking over the areas that is now the Netherlands and forcing Catholicism on the Protestants there is a direct result of the Counter Reformation. Yes. So and and these kinds of things like led up to um, this conflict. So right. So and I. Well, and then, okay. Yeah, sorry, go I, ahead. I can give just a little bit no. more, which is in the early 1580s, the uh, people of the Netherlands start to revolt against their Spanish Catholic overlords. And the person who sort of leads these revolts, the person they look to to lead at least, is a very wealthy and powerful nobleman named William the Duke of Orange, or also known as William the Silent. Um, and he is these rebellions are pretty successful to the point where King Philip II puts a bounty on his head. And that introduces Balthazar Gerard, but we can get into that. Yeah, so confusingly, he is sometimes known as William of Orange. Well, yeah, so um, William, Duke is, of Orange, William the Silent, and William of Orange. It's typically, uh, we'll refer to, I think, henceforth as William the Silent, because William of Orange is more commonly the name associated with William the Silent's great-grandson. Ah, okay. Who, like, <laughs> who became king of England, Ireland, and Scotland? <laughs> Which, is, and yes, yes, that's like is, English Civil War, maybe 70, yeah. 75 years after this. It was yes, he took power in a sort of bloodless uh, revolution, and he's the one that's kind of, um, kind of uh, credited for um, solidifying the power of parliament but we don't need to get involved with him but i just wanted to clarify that there's two guys called william of orange in history and they're both pretty important and we're going to um, talk about the prince of orange william's yes. son so it's you know that's where it gets confusing yeah this is like a landed um like a no a, a title of nobility yeah um okay so anyway um broadly this the 80 years war is known as the dutch revolution or the dutch war of independence this is a really important. I I I, um, I found that this is really important for Dutch history, as you might imagine. Oh yeah, and a lot of and like every Dutch school child like learns about this, and there are a couple um, festivals um, during the year that that commemorate uh, some major battles and um, and things like that. Which might explain why. I mean, had either of you heard this story before I brought it up? No, not of William the Silent. No, so I, have it's, not. It's I, I heard of yeah. William of Orange, but I think it's the other William of Orange. Mm-hmm. That same, would make sense. Same, yeah. yeah, that's why I, that initially was. Um, that's why I wanted to issue that clarification because I, I was initially quite 
confused by that particular point because I was more familiar, I think, with um, his uh, his great great grandson. Okay, so um, ultimately, uh, this war did last for eighty years, and I can go into maybe later why it lasted for eighty years. The tail end of this was also concurrent with another conflict called the Thirty Years' War, which we cannot get into detail in this episode because it was it was I think accurately just could be accurately described as a world war mm-hmm. because it involved the m- much of the continent of Europe and their overseas colonies. And and to clarify for the listener, this we're talking sort of about the beginning of the Eighty Years' War. These are the things that sort of launch it, right? Yeah. So uh, we're running the from the, the 1580s into the 1660s. Yeah, at the end of the episode, I think I would like to just kind of follow up on his uh, son and grandson. And like sure, sure, sure. How, how finish the story just a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay, so what is um, what's the timeline here? So 1555 to 1568, um, Philip II, who is the uh, king of Spain... His father was the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, abdicated control of the Low Countries, the Netherlands, uh, to Philip II. So now the King of Spain is also in control of the uh, the Netherlands. As Dave mentioned, Spain, Catholic country, Philip II, Catholic monarch. He imposes the Inquisition on the famed Spanish Inquisition on these countries, again, as part of this Catholic counter-reformation. They're trying to reverse the um, uh, the conversion of Protestantism of large swaths of, uh, of Europe. Um, and the Netherlands were a mix. Parts, region, some regions, especially in the north, were more Protestant, primarily Calvin, uh, Calvinist, and uh, but they were also... Um, there were also uh, Mennonites and uh, Anabaptists. And then in the South, they were mainly Catholic. So that also caused this conflict to be more complicated than it might have been. And it's also because they were not necessarily like allied with one another. They occasionally formed alliances in order to repel the Spanish, but they weren't necessarily on the quote unquote the same team because of these religious differences. Um, Can I talk about Charles V for, uh, for a second? Oh yeah, man, get after, get after it. So, I don't know if you mentioned it specifically, but Charles V was became the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, and that's all a whole separate thing that kind of gets entwined within this. But they are Catholic and have a religious dog in this fight. And the Holy Roman Emperor em, Empire is the like. They they draw a direct line to the Western Roman Empire, the historical Roman Empire of antiquity, but it's mainly what is modern day Germany, Germany and Austria, uh, and the the Austria, yes, yeah, were based in Austria, and Charles V's father Philip I married Joanna of Castile and became the Spanish king. So that's why we're talking about Catholic rulers in Spain getting involved with the Netherlands. Right. And around the 1480s, most of the Netherlands was part of the Burgundian empire that kind of 
like dissolved and then got absorbed into the Holy Roman Emperor, Holy Roman Empire. But after um, Charles V's son Philip imposed all of these restrictions and stuff, they kind of weren't into it anymore. To put it simply, yeah. But the uh, but the Habsburgs kept marrying into other royal families, so like um, Spain, Croatia. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire—that's all Habsburg stuff. Yeah, they're all—they're all related. Um, they're all blood relatives, and a lot of marrying cousins and things like that. As get we that lump jaw. Get that lump jaw. Uh, okay, so 1556, crucial year. Philip II, again King of Spain, issues his Edict of 1556, um, which outlawed Protestant sects, books, preaching, and meetings. So again, they're trying. So they're uh, putting these increasingly draconian measures on the, especially the Protestant population of the Netherlands. Um, the, the pendulum sort of swings in the opposite direction. 1566, um, Protestants in the Netherlands um, engage in um, iconoclasm. So in, uh, especially Calvinism, but these, at this time in Protestantism, they were against the use of iconography, you the um, making statues of saints and paintings of saints, essentially. Sure. Um, that was one of the things that Martin Luther was uh, very uh, against. So they engaged in um, this um, extreme iconoclasm. In the Netherlands, it is remem- remembered as the Bildenstorm, statue storm, where they went into all the Catholic churches and tore down the statues. So now now Philip gets real pissed and he sends the Duke of Alba, this guy, the Duke of Alba, who was uh, uh, a real hard ass, um, who was uh, known as the Iron Duke. Oh, man. Which I had one of those earlier. <laughs> I was like, you can either make a poof joke or you can make an Iron Sheik reference. They got some medications went, for that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, Dave yeah. went prune juice. Dave, really. <laughs> Dave went that direction. Yeah, um, nobody expected okay. anything less. They're just glad yes. I didn't mention Arby's or Burger King. I, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's still a lot of time left in this episode. I mean, I just did so. <laughs> so the, so the Duke of uh, the Duke of Alba, the Iron Duke, comes in and he um is uh trying to put down this nascent rebellion. Um, and then the rebellion begins to look to um, William the Silent, who was uh, a politician and and sort of became increasingly drawn into this revolution. It's really interesting figures, which we can discuss more. But he was um, he was a Protestant, but he had been Catholic. He had actually converted, but he was mostly about religious freedom. He wanted people to be able to practice whichever of the Two major branches of we Christianity. About that they William the to. Silent now. William the Silent, yeah. Okay. Uh, so this, and then anyway, this this what kicks off kicks off this conflict, which lasts for eighty years. I just want to mention what is the well later I'll mention what are the end results of the the conflict. Some of the intervening details. We're not going to go into battles and stuff like that. We're talking about William the Silent. Pretty interesting guy. I'd say so. Yeah. I can speak a little bit more about him. Sure. Mm-hmm. So um, William the Silent was born in 1533. He was part of a 
wealthy sort of noble family. Um, they were religious and Lutheran, Protestant Lutheran, which is kind of important. But mm-hmm. in um, 1544, William's cousin, Rene of Chalon, Prince of Orange, died in a siege and left his titles and estate to William, including the title of Prince of Orange, but Mm -hmm. on the condition that he received a Roman Catholic education. So this is the reason that he, quote-unquote, converted, I guess. Yeah, he he converted two times. Because I think he eventually did, he converted back. He kind of converted back later after all of this stuff got kicked off, but... Yeah, because he was so young at this time. Um, Charles V, who we just mentioned, kind of oversaw this area that he was t- uh, sort of in charge of by title. Um, and Charles V's sister was his educational tutor, so. William ended up becoming pretty close to the royal royal family because of these um, connections. He became uh, a military officer, and at like age 22, he was in charge of an army in some major battles. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he was married and, and had a bunch of kids. He uh, was appointed the governor of the provinces of Holland, Zeeland, and Utrecht in 1559 by Philip II. In the years after that, he had a position on the Council of State and became a little bit more involved in the Dutch government, I guess, outside of the Spanish royals. Um, and he saw these things happening, like the activity of the Inquisition in the Netherlands. We, did we talk about the Spanish Inquisition like on its own in an episode? I think we did. I think we did. We did. We did our own episode on it. There's a guy named, um, Cardinal Granville who was appointed the Inquisitor of the Netherlands. So he became kind of like a prime enemy figure. Mm-hmm. Um, William also worked with Margaret of Parma, who was sort of like the gov the. It says that she's a governor too, but I think that she's maybe like a more symbolic sort of governor. Um, okay. And. Um, he he eventually tur- was a loyal kind of person to the royalty, but then I don't know how to say it. Became more in opposition, just more in opposition to Spanish rule. He didn't think that the Spanish needed to be there. There were um, Spanish troops in the Netherlands, kind of overseeing things. Um, the religious freedoms were squashed. Um, this inquisitor stuff was going on too so he became a more of a rebel and Mm -hmm. eventually reverted to being a calvinist 
Okay. Yeah. Um, but still believe that, you know, everybody had the right to practice their own religious opinions. So you, I know you, you kind of mentioned this, uh, Mark, but you'll often, uh, if you read about him, you'll hear him referred to by the, the, uh, Dutch name for the, um, the administrator, the, the stadtholder. So he, he was essentially the administrator of the Netherlands for King Philip. So he was like, so he was a politician. But he, he was, you know, he was in, in good with, um, with these folks, uh, in the lead up to this, he was appointed the, like the governor, like you said, or, um, the administrator or steward, the, the stadtholder, but, you know, over time became increasingly disillusioned with uh, Spanish rule because of their, um, you know, brutality. Uh, he, uh, I, I should mention that uh, I, I said that um, they brought the Iron Duke in. That guy's name was, uh, oh, lost it in my notes. Uh, Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, the third Duke of Alba. But I, I think the Iron Duke is uh, is a much funnier name. Yeah, I would say so. Because who made poop jokes? <laughs> so yeah. Uh, who, who 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 he's he's executing a lot of people. I, I think I didn't stress that enough um, because of this uh, <laughs> an edict from um, Philip II to go put down this nascent rebellion. He starts executing thousands of people so again this is going to push people to the brink including william the silent yeah william also financially supported a lot of the rebellion groups oh yes yeah, there was wasn't very, like very one well. rebellion group it seemed like there were a bunch yeah. there were um and that's a good this is a good time to point out that part another reason that made these conflicts so complicated or complicated to learn about um was that we often think about history or military history in terms of the 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 next cent or, or a couple centuries later, where you have uh, like the Napoleonic era, where you have standing professional armies that are conscript armies. That's not who these people are. These are mercenaries on both sides. There were mercenaries. Uh, a lot of them were from uh, Switzerland. Just funny. Swiss mercenaries were like some of the most famous from this time period. And because we think about Swiss, Switzerland being like a neutral country. Right. Um, there were mercenaries from, from all over and a lot of mercenaries from Italy or, well, the region of Italy, which was a collection of city-states. Um, and that's partly why some of these, these uh, battles were indecisive. Because they're working for money. They're not working for love of their country or defending freedom or or any of these things. Not even, you know, just base nationalism. If the battle wasn't was going poorly, they would run. <laughs> Get the fuck out of there. So um that's another thing that's uh, kind of interesting to to point out. Well, let's bring in Balthazar Gerard here. Yeah, let's get him. Um, so I cannot believe that this man has not been featured in a uh, Assassin's Creed game. Uh, I mean, hell yeah, man. He so so basically because these rebellions are successful, King Philip II puts a bounty on the head of William the Silent. He offers twenty five thousand crowns. Um, he 
uh, he he also offers uh, to be like the the family of the person who's able to you know kill William the Silent will be lifted to nobility, uh, and they will have some estates given to them, some country estates. So Balthazar Gerard, who is a young lawyer in France, he's from France, a part of France that is controlled by the Spanish. Um, he sees this and decides he's going to he's going to act on it. He is a uh, he's a Catholic, he's very Catholic, very much in support of Philip II. Very so, Catholic, very Catholic. I mean, he's he's Catholic. Fam- family had eleven kids. Yeah, eleven kids, very and he Catholic. was. And he's only 26 <laughs> or 27 years old at this time. So do, uh, the, yeah. do the get, math on get, that. Get busy birthing or get busy dying. Oh, just kidding. You're doing both. I mean, he started early. <laughs> so we're saying he had 11 kids. His The family that he belonged to, he was one oh. of 11 kids. Okay. I thought you were saying he had 11 children. No. No. Although I do, think he had, I do think he had children, though. I do believe he did. Um, anyways, he was born in 1557. Um, so he decides he's going to he's going to attempt to assassinate William the Silent. He's unaware that William the Silent has already escaped one assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. There was somebody else that tried to kill him and was killed trying to do so. But Philip heads to the Netherlands to to go through with this, and what he ends up doing. He's he's dressed in sort of ratty clothes because he wants to um, be inconspicuous, and he We're starts about to Balthazar. Ca- right? Balthazar, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and Balthazar, he starts to case William the Silent's estate, which is within a city. Um, and as he's casing it, a guard notices him and is suspicious of what he's doing. So, thinking very quickly on his feet, he says, "Oh." I, I'm just wandering because I am too embarrassed to go into this church. There's a church like across from his estate, from William's estate. He says, I'm too embarrassed to go into the church because I'm wearing such ratty clothes. Figures that the guard will just leave him alone. Well, the guard decides he's going to take pity on this guy and goes inside, gets William to give m- money to this guy to go get better clothes. Balthazar Gerard takes that money and goes and buys two pistols. Because so William the Silent, without knowing, financed his own assassination. Which why didn't holy this sh- guy have shit. a weapon when he went there? I wondered that too, and I couldn't find anything about that. My guess is that he just didn't want to be caught with a weapon and was still trying to figure out what to do. Like I said, he's casing the joint. Well, before he before he went there. It, he wrote a whole bunch of letters to different people kind of explaining what he was going to do. Right. Well, I'll put it this way. If you're going to rob a bank by drilling through the basement of another building to get into it, you don't case the bank holding a jackhammer. <laughs> I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> Anyways, he goes and buys two pistols. He heads back. He gets inside the estate and sort of hunkers in a corner, waits for William the Silent to come down the stairs, turns in front of him and fires two times both shots hit William the Silent killing him and Balthazar Gerard takes off and he's got a pretty good route to escape but unfortunately he trips over a pile of garbage he just damn that garbage I can't, I, can't, I don't know and, uh, and in the background it was yeah I <laughs> yeah, sax was playing 
He was gonna. He was trying to jump over the wall into the moat, and yeah, then apparently jump onto a, a waiting horse. He had a horse waiting, and he also had a pig's bladder around his waist that was going to keep him like buoyant when he jumped into the water. Um, in any case, he trips over garbage. He gets caught by the by the guards, um, and he says, supposedly says, "I am no traitor. I am a loyal servant of my lord." They said, "Which lord?" And he said. Of my lord and my master, the king of Spain. And then they dragged him away after beating him with the butt of, of, of a couple swords and punching him many, many times. Basically, a mob started to beat the hell out of him and then they dragged him away. Well, did you did you uh, read what uh, poor our, our man, William the Silent, what his last words were? What were his last words? Because there's more to what Balthazar says. So let's kind of go back. So that all happens. What does William the Silent say? So I, just, I think like things like people's last words are, are, you know, when these things are recorded, I think it's pretty interesting. I, I am not at all going to attempt the French, but he said, my God, have pity on my soul. My God, have pity on this poor people. So this is important to point out that he didn't die instantly. He bleeds out. And there's a lot of chatter in the street as this is happening. And some of that chatter is heard by Balthazar Gerard. He heard that William the Silent is still alive and he yells, cursed by the hand that missed. So he gets dragged away thinking he's failed. Mm -hmm. The article that I read said that it is likely that um, William never said that and he did die instantly. But ah. this has been a, a great point of conjecture. Well, the, um, the, the, the quote is kind of like an apocryphal thing to make it I, a little spicy. I would think you're right because both bullets went all the way through him. And I know this because I'm looking at a picture of the two bullet holes that are still in the wall and encased in a frame, oh. you could go and see Pretty them. Sweet. If I ever end up in the Netherlands, first place I'm going. But I want to point I mean, out that's again. One of the things that's awesome about Europe is like that. That that is like older than the oldest city in the U.S. that you could go visit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's older than the United States has even been imagined. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out again. This is the first recorded political assassination of a head of state with a firearm, and another one would not occur for more than 200 years, when in 1792, King Gustav III of Sweden was fatally wounded at a midnight masquerade. Funny that they both happened in Scandinavia, well, near Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess the Netherlands isn't, well, it is, it's near Scandinavia, I guess that's subjective, but. Can we talk about, uh, just briefly about the type of, of pistol, because I think. Yes, I, I saw a picture of it, but I, I don't know much about yeah. it. Yeah, being able, I because mean, I think like being able to murder someone with a handgun happened in this time period. Seem, well, I said it, none of the one didn't happen for 200 years. It's It was pretty, pretty rare to do this. Firearm technology was rapidly evolving at this point because of its increased use in warfare, which I will hopefully talk about. At the end, but um, it was a wheel lock, uh, pistol. So, just very quickly, like firearms, how do they work? You have some sort of uh, black powder, the explosive that ignites inside the firearm and propels the bullet. Um, in this case, it would have been a ball, uh, out of it. That's but there. Um, the difficult part is igniting the powder when you want and you know not before that so um wheel lock pistols were an interesting like 
uh, I would say like transitional device in between um, the match lock um, and things like the snap lock and the flint lock. So when we're talking about flint locks. Those are what would have been used um, throughout like the war, the revolution, American revolution and things like that all the way up until um, self-contained cartridges, which uh, are at the beginning of the 1800s. So, so what a, what is a wheel lock, a match lock. You literally have a lit match, a piece of burning, rope and then when you pull the trigger that moves down and ignites a pan of powder and shoots your your bullet a wheel lock is an attempt to make that mechanism a little bit uh and match lo match locks were used in during this time period wheel locks were like less common and and more expensive and fancier sure um what so what's a wheel lock it, it's got a spring-loaded steel wheel that um <clears throat> that spins against a piece of pyrite or fool's gold which sends sparks into the gunpowder pan that goes down into the chamber to ignite the bulk of the powder and shoot out the bullet does that make sense yeah yeah so the the ignition mechanism spins it's like a good way to describe it is like is actually like um it's like a watch spring that, that you have to crank. Yeah. To it's kind of initiate it. It's it's the same mechanism as a like a bic lighter. Okay. It, it's exactly the same thing. When you're when you're pushing that like little wheel, grinding it against the stuff inside to shoot the sparks and ignite your butane. That's what a wheel lock is. So they were more reliable, far more reliable than matchlock pistols. And also you didn't have to have a lit match carrying or carrying around with you. So you could conceal them. This would be a pretty okay. difficult weapon to conceal. Cause it's like fucking two feet long. Yeah. It's big as fuck, but it's still, it's, it's again, it's easier to conceal than something that like literally has a burning fuse on it. This also might answer your question, Mark. Like, why didn't he go there with guns? This was not, and now we think of a political assassination, obviously you're going to shoot somebody. That was probably not, I mean, it, this is the first time. So he may have went with a dagger or something like that. And then he's given this money and he decides, well, I can put this to use. I'm and, speculating uh, here. And I don't know his background. I don't know if he knew how to use a firearm. He must have had some experience because he was able to shoot him twice without missing. So It said that he bought these guns from a soldier. Yeah, so, I read that. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he showed him how to use it. But it also said that the guy that he had talked to in front of William's castle thing, they referred to him as a halberdier, a guy with a halberd, like a big pole mm -hmm. axe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's a testament to this weird transitional, like medieval and then the more modern aspect of what, what's going on. Right. Warfare at this time was still using, was using a combination of firearms and um, halberds and pikes and even like swords and bucklers uh, as well as well as cavalry. So like this in artillery. So this is all like being used at the same time. It's really interesting. It's also why this war took 80 years. It's a big part of it. Um, that makes sense. But he could carry, he could carry two of these things again, because he, it's not a match lock that takes two hands. 
and you kind of can't fire an on demand because you got to get your your cord lit and all this stuff. So again, like this is a I think these these moments in history are really interesting where they're confluence of uh, circumstance, um, history, politics, technology, all sort of going together to create this moment. I guess yeah. you could say that for any period of time, but no, I think this was kind of a, a turning point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a series of weird coincidences, right? Because like he goes there and happens upon like money from the guy he's going to assassinate to get the weapons he's going to use the assassin. Like his plan wasn't exactly like that. Like, so it, it's, it's, it's not like he had this very clear plan. He went and he executed it. It was like certain dominoes fell and it allowed him to pull this off maybe easier than he expected. And he almost got away. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things that I read kind of hinted to the idea that he wasn't afraid to die and was I ready to become a martyr yeah. for doing this. He said at one point they they were he was being examined by a series of magistrates they're asking him a lot of questions interrogating him basically um and he never showed any despair any regret and quietly said like david he had slain goliath of gath so he just sort of like i I, you know he like i said he didn't necessarily do this for the money he was a lawyer and he was very devoted to catholicism and king philip ii so he he was there for the king. Yeah. Uh, Going back to something when, Joe said earlier about... Sorry, when did this assassination take place? 1584. Specifically, it was on July 10th, 1584. Okay. Going back to something that Joe mentioned earlier about how the idea of the state wasn't really a thing yet, this time seems like it's the the precursor to like nationalist ideas as well. I think so. I mean, yeah. Like the the Dutch were very like we we are Dutch. We don't need to be Spanish. And uh, that that idea kind of grows and grows over the next couple hundred years to have like formal states. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 age of nationalism and and also the monarchs starting to um, the monarchs consolidating power. And the rise of absolute monarchies. Because at this point, they're still like, they have loose control. Uh, and a lot of the no- nobility uh, has a-, a lot more power, which is partly why this happened. Because the nobility were the people that really controlled the Netherlands. And when uh, King Philip of Spain tried to impose his will, it caused this rebellion and eventually this war of. Um, independence. I didn't know that Charles V was elected Holy Roman Emperor. I didn't know anybody was elected Ho- Holy Roman Empire. Well, apparently Emperor. so. Um, I didn't dig into the circumstances of that, but a couple of the figures in the Wikipedia article that I read about this makes reference to uh, a noble person or a king or whatever being elected by a council of nobles. Hmm. And okay. Uh, I don't know, apparently the style of kingship was a little bit different than the absolute monarchy that Joe's talking about thinking about mm-hmm. somebody like Louis the 14th who yeah. we've talked about and seemed kind of like a bigger dick than any of these guys. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's hard to say, I suppose, but yeah. 
yeah, many of them were pretty huge dicks. Um, Iron Duke. Iron <laughs> Duke. Uh, so now, okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to want to derail us here, Dave. And I, I, I hate to, I usually hate to like do this, but we talked, we're talking about William Silent being the first assassination um, by pistol. First head of state. Yeah. Head of state. Okay. I think it kind of, I guess it could sort of depends because uh, in 1563, the Duke of Guise was also assassinated by a, uh, a wheel lock pistols. But I guess Duke is, that's a, t- a title of nobility, not a head of well, state. So. But, but, but William the Silent was also the Duke of Orange. What is his status? What makes him the head of state? He was the leader of the Netherlands, essentially. He was the, the stadtholder. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, that, that's so, true. But, I mean, the point is, you know, that there are, um, like we were talking about, this confluence of history. You have these, like, more concealable, easier-to-use uh, weapons. Um, you The wheel lock required a lot less training. You were talking about, like, did he know how to fire it? Uh, and, uh, and they were more reliable that kind of, it was inevitable that they were going to get used for yeah. assassinations, but it's interesting that it wouldn't be that there were not more of these instances. But well, let's get back to to our man Balthazar Gerard. Yes. Here. So he let's hear ha- about what happens to him. He is put on trial very quickly, and that trial is very quick. And the magistrates decree that these are the things that will happen to him: one, he will have his right hand burned off with a red hot iron. Two, his flesh will be torn from his bones with pincers in six different places. I'm not sure what six places those are. Um, Then he'll be quartered, disemboweled, alive, his heart torn from his chest and flung into his face, and that his head will then finally be cut off. It's not the execution, though, that ends up being the bad part. It's the torture. His torture is extremely brutal. So let's break it down here. And just a warning, it's pretty rough. Just your content warning. So on the first night of his imprisonment, he is hung from a pole and lashed with a whip. And these are the kind of lashings and type of whip that are going to take big chunks of flesh off. Then those wounds are smeared with honey, and they bring in a goat to lick the wounds. Because the goat oh, is no. a really goat is a really rough tongue. Fortunately, this goat, not into it. Refuses to uh, do okay. it. Okay. He's like, fuck it, bail. You want me to eat what? What? That goat's like, what this fucking guy ever do to me? Yeah, I don't know him. I don't like honey. Anyways, goat refuses to lick him. (laughs) So, fortunate. (laughs) Um, Then he is left to all night with his hands and feet bound together in a ball. So he can't really sleep very easily. Then over the next three days, he has the following things done to him. Um, He has... 300 pound weights attached to his big toes while he's hung up by his arms um so they're just weighing on his toes and they basically all but tear the ligaments and bones from his feet then he's fitted with shoes that are made of uncured dog skin they describe the shoes as being two fingers shorter than his feet. And I've seen this description several times. I don't know exactly what that means, but they're very small, very tight uncured dog skin and then his feet are are placed over a fire so that the dog skin contracts and crushes his feet into little nubs 
Jesus Christ. Um, then when they remove the shoes, they just tear them off. So any skin that's left is just torn off. Um, then they brand his armpits. <sighs> then they get a shirt, soak in alcohol, and put that on him. So now his all of the whip wounds, the brands, are all being burned by the alcohol. And lastly, they pour burning bacon fat over him so that there's no part of his flesh that is not injured in some way. And then they take nails and drive them between and uh, underneath his finger and toenails. Well, his toenails that are left. There's not much left with the feet. But Yeah, I was going to say. So it's what toenails? Been, so this all happens in the span of four days. Like his after, so he he actually he assassinates William the Silent on July 10th. All of this happens um, up until July 14th, at which point he is executed. And during his execution, they do all of the things they said. They burn off his right hand. They um, they use pincers to tear off his flesh at six different parts of his body. They quarter him, disembowel him, take his heart, rip it out, throw it in his face, and cut his head off. All of those things happen here's the amazing thing the reports are that during his torture his several days of torture he never screams out all these things that happened to him he was stoic through all of it some sort of superhuman ability and and that's sort of strange because these are the reports by the people who tortured him they would want nothing more than to embarrass this guy yet they say he never screamed out Part of what they're saying is that he was never remorseful, but he really never yeah. said anything. Um, strange, cred- strange credulity. Uh, kind of unbelievable. Um, well, did they have well, like a creative, the... creative producer for this uh, execution I, or something? So I read something. Remember, okay, so remember, <laughs> let's go back to the beginning of the episode. Everything I read was like, oh, and of course, this is the worst execution. Yeah. yeah. When the magistrates declared what they were going to do to him, people felt that it was extreme. And we're talking about extreme for the 15 fucking 80s. I mean, do you know how extreme something has to be for people during the 16th century to go, yeah, yeah they, you know, it is a fucked, it's a fucked up shit. Right. So that, you know, they, they were trying to make an extreme example of him and that they did. And I'm sure he was aware of that. Well, they kind of did, but, uh, I mean, yes, they did, but, um, while William the Silent became a martyr of sorts for the Netherlands, and for that cause, um, Balthazar became a martyr uh, in Spain. Yeah, let's talk. So, let's talk about what happens after this, because this is where I think it's really, really uh, kind of comical in a way. Because Philip II decides to be a real dick to uh, all, to the Dutch uh, about all this. So William the Second gives. Balthazar Gerard's parents the reward. 25,000 crowns, three country estates, and raises their family to nobility. Mm-hmm. Then, Philip II offers those estates to Philip William, to William the Silent's son. Says, you know what? I'm not going to give them to them. I'm going to give them to you. But, you can only have them if you continue to pay fixed portions of rent to Balthazar Gerard's family. So basically, he gives the estates to Balthazar Gerard's parents and then says, now I'm going to offer these to, to William the Silent's son, but he has to pay rent to you. 
Obviously, Philip William uh, was very insulted by this and rejected that offer. Uh, yes. I also read that there was a, a vicar who tried to canonize Balthazar Gerard. Um, apparently, he somehow got a hold of his head and showed it to church officials in Rome, but that caused the idea to be rejected. Or maybe it was rejected for another reason, but I think people were pretty shocked by seeing his severed head. Um, so, interesting. Yes. I don't know how he got it. Uh, guys, guys, guys. Okay. We can crush his feet to nubs, but let's leave the goat out of this. My, <laughs> the weirdest thing to me is like they bring him out there and they were like, are we still going to burn his hand off? Also, how do you burn a hand off? Just slowly? I don't know. Like It feels like overkill. But yeah. Are, are we going to cut his heart out and throw it in his face? Yeah, but let's burn his hand off first. <laughs> so. Yeah, there's... um. Yeah, the, there's a. I think there's an insult there with the goat. Like, you're so ugly, you couldn't even slather yourself in honey and get a goat to lick you. Well, I think what it is with the hand is like, assuming you're right-handed, that's sort of like symbolic. But the magistrates yeah. didn't decree that he was going to be tortured in such a way. So I think they were like, we'll burn his hand off. And then somebody was like, first, we're going to do all this shit. And then they brought him out and they were like, well, we said we were going to burn his hand off. I guess we're burning his hand off. Yeah, this is like... I, I don't know. There's yeah. Whoever was in charge of that dungeon was just like going above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, we'll say. I think we call it going ham. Going ham. Yeah, yeah. that's what his feet look like at the end. <laughs> oh, going Jesus ham. Christ. Yeah. Do we, do we want to do we want to tie a bow on this and uh, and just talk about like how how this eighty years war ended and and how William is remembered? I I, I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. We'll keep it brief here because, again, you know, we, this, this episode's about William Silent. But um, William Silent is um, he's famous for this for being the father of uh, of the father of the Netherlands as an independent country. Yeah, they call him the famous. father of the fatherland, which is yes. redundant. Thank you. He <laughs> he's famous for um, for his children and or his his progeny. So his son was uh maurice of orange um so he took over as the leader of the, the military <laughs> some people maurice defend the fatherland your peaches want to burn off your hand so maurice took over get to go to get to go to get to go to Anyways. Yep. And uh and continued the the struggle. Um Philip II died in 1598 and was succeeded by his son Philip III who uh continued the policies uh, of his father. But at this point the uh there were a few developments. The Dutch armies were now better trained and more effective. Uh and then there were some external factors for this the Spanish just briefly I'll talk about the tactics. Um, this was a, a revolution in warfare, and it start kind of started with uh, uh, the Dutch in this conflict. They studied um, the military doctrine of Rome uh, as well as Greece and the Byzantines, and used that to adapt their tactics. Um, so there's two developments. One, it's they they basically keeping it brief. They split 
their uh their infantry into smaller units who could move more quickly and independently and if one of these units fell then it wasn't the whole it wasn't your whole uh army this is different from the military doctrine at that point where you had three blocks you're basically your front line your mid line your back line or i'm sorry your front line your back line and your reserves uh the Spanish were formidable at this point because they used these big blocks with pikemen and uh, uh, and muskets. So the um, the uh, Netherlands are using, or the Dutch, they're using these smaller infantry units. They also got rid of all of their swords and buckler fighters and their two-handed sword fighters, which had been used in the past to like try to cut the pikes and sort of sweep the field uh, when the uh, gunfire died down. They replaced them, and they're, they're halberdiers. They replaced them all with pikemen. So the pikemen protect the gunners, who they developed this uh, system, various different systems that they were fined over the years during this conflict, so that basically by the time the front line of muskets had fired, because you can fire one or two times in a minute, with these matchlocks. Okay. They would move to the back line. And by the time they got back up to the front line, they were ready to fire again because these guns were so inaccurate. One, one person is not going to hit anything. You need a volley of fire in order to, to hit things. So you have like a human conveyor belt of, yeah. of guns. It's a human conveyor belt. Exactly. And then the pipe men are around them in order to keep them from getting rushed by cavalry. Okay. Pikes are a long stick. Sure. With a pointy pointy end. It's the simplest weapon you can possibly imagine. Um, and then they also drilled and trained their soldiers. And then used increasing amounts of firearms. They then they were able to successfully compete against the Spanish on open field combat, which they were not earlier on in the war. Now, fortunately, warfare at this time was not most of it was not open field combat. Like we that's like the Napoleonic Wars or like the Revolutionary War. It was a lot of siege warfare, and you didn't, you know, you, so there was long stretches of time during this war where there wasn't actually any fighting. There was just uh, they were besieging these cities. So that's partly why it took eighty years. Um, and then the, also the thing that happened was the external factors, because Spain is not just fighting against the Netherlands. Spain was fighting several wars at the same time. But once uh, uh, your girl Elizabeth the first. Uh, started getting involved uh, against um, Spain. Then uh, they needed to uh, get their shit together. They There was a 12-year truce so that Spain could uh, fight its other wars against England and others. Um, and they could, both sides could rebuild their forces and things like that. Eventually, the war was rekindled, which was also part of the broader conflict, the Third Year's War, which is a continent-wide conflict and at the end of the 30 years war spain agreed to the independence of the netherlands so the results of this war and and william the silence um you know legacy is uh this was the beginning of the end of the spanish empire they they thought you know they had been dominant in their colonial power uh at you know prior to this but this was kind of the beginning of the end and England uh, and the Dutch um, 
sort of be, started to become ascendant as far as uh, colonial powers. Spain was um, getting involved in the Americas too. Yes. At this time. Uh, yes. Referred uh, to our recent episode about uh, Mesoamerican cultures. We talked a little bit about this. They uh, they didn't keep enough uh, of an eye on what was going on at home. So Portugal gained independence from Spain after this period. Um, warfare on the continent changed, as I mentioned. Um, uh, Dutch independence to the formation of the Dutch Republic. Um, uh, and then um, the Netherlands, like I said, became a major European power, and they started to colonize parts of the Americas. So very amazing turnaround for the Dutch going from being a, a, a vassal state under the subjugation of uh, Spain to becoming a, essentially taking Spain's place as a world power. Yeah. Not bad. For, not bad for a tiny country that uh, is actually underwater. <laughs> uh, they they let a lot. Uh, there were several battles where they actually let that they uh, um, released the water from the dikes and flooded the field and helped them defeat the the Spanish. So I read that um, they spent centuries keeping the water at bay, and finally they used it to their advantage. So that was kind of poetic. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So William the Silent, I mean, he's like, he is a hero in the Netherlands um, because he is largely responsible for kicking off this rebellion, which became an 80-year war of independence. Okay, but there, but the uh, uh, last thing I want to mention is that the southern parts of the the Netherlands still re- became still were retained by Spain, and uh, only sort of gradually over time were they absorbed into the Dutch Republic. Apparently, there are st- there's a still uh, quite a lot of Spanish influence in that region, and a lot of surnames are uh, derived from Spanish. In that area, okay, that's there was interesting. A, there was a um, uh, a YouTuber that I was watching, or a historian who was talking about this, who mentioned that actually his um, uh, the surname of his mother, I believe, was actually derived from Spanish. So it's um, it, it's definitely like there's a lot of uh, influences in that country of different um, uh, other parts of Europe. So there you go. Okay, interesting. So yeah, that was a pretty pretty interesting little story, and concise. Uh, about, I think we did it in a concise way. Yeah, about yes. uh, a period of history that is often overlooked. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I th- yeah, I think it's overlooked because, like, it's so goddamn complicated. I mean, like, it's very complicated. But as you mentioned, a lot of things happen in this time period that. Yeah, become much more important later, like technolo- technological and weapons innovations, um, yeah. political ideas, religious changes. All well, all I just remember, like, yeah, I just remember read, reading or like, lear- you know, in like European history class, and you know, you're learning about like, oh, okay, and then Spain was kind of the dominant global power. You know, they were they were the kind of the first to start colonizing the Americas, and then like, okay, like next chapter. Oh, and then the Dutch are also calling it. Wait, wait, where did the Dutch come from? <laughs> yeah, this is where. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, <laughs> we could really propel from this episode and talk about a lot of other things, but you know, 
I, I really just found this story about Balthazar Gerard to be really compelling, but it is it is one one little bit of a much, much larger story. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, getting interested in uh, uh, tor- torture videos on YouTube and then finding this topic, Dave. Yeah, I, yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> so anyways, um, I don't know what next week's or two weeks from now or what our episode will be, but uh, we'll try to keep it light. Yeah. All right. Until then. So long. Thank you for listening to an hour of our time. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to explore our catalog of over 150 episodes and rate and review on your platform of choice. And if you have any comments or episode topic suggestions, contact us at an hour of our time podcast at gmail.com.